I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Franz Fanon is our interest in this podcast. The man had charisma across the board in a short life and a long afterlife. A black man from the Caribbean. He went to France first as a soldier to help free the French from Germany and then to become a medical doctor and a psychiatrist and then to North Africa to serve a revolution against France in Algeria. Along the way, he wrote about politics with the touch of a poet. To this day, when the world talks about healing itself, Franz Fanon hovers and gets quoted among the giants of modern thought about race and justice, about post-colonial wisdom, if there is such a thing. So how is to draw on Fanonism anew and test it in the real emergencies of a divided world in the 2020s? Adam Schatz, you are our idea of a public intellectual of the widest range, and all the while it turns out you've been hooked on Franz Fanon and gathering string for this big new book, The Rebel's Clinic, reanimating the revolutionary lives of Franz Fanon. Your readers feel an uncanny resonance between Franz Fanon time in the 1950s and the cruel news of the 2020s at the U.S. border with Mexico to take one of many examples, and of course the killing field of Gaza between Israelis and Palestinians. So why Fanon and why Fanon now? Can we hope to hear from you, Adam, what Franz Fanon would see in our picture? I think he would see a world that is post-colonial, but where the colonial and post-colonial is just as important as the post. The colonial world the world of the old European empires has crumbled, but it has cast a long shadow over the world that we inhabit today. The same kinds of inequalities and injustices persist. Mm. And we see this in the vast divide between the global north and the global south. And we see it also in the very different ways in which the global south and the global north respond to crises like the war in Gaza. Fanon is, shall we say, fashionable again. Maybe it's the George Floyd moment and afterward, but he is the authority on resistance. He's famous and still controversial for seeing a tentative hope in revolutionary violence, a detoxifying, or maybe translated better as disalienated effect on people who rebel against their own enforced habit of helplessness. And we've got to get to that. But I would much rather start with Franz Fanon, the young doctor and psychiatrist on hospital duty in Algeria. He was treating the tortured and their torturers as well. He was still in his 20s, learning on the job, which was anything but theoretical. And he drew on that clinical experience for the rest of his life. I could listen all day about that man and what it was that stuck all his life about the conflict of cultures politics, the meaning of sanity, and well-being. Maybe this is the moment to say, I find his psychology more interesting almost than his politics and his identity, this matter of sanity. Picture him in that clinic in his mid-twenties. Well, Fanon gets to Algeria in December of 1953. This is 11 months before the War of Independence breaks out. And Fanon didn't arrive there to make the revolution in Algeria. He arrived there as a colonial administrator. He got a plum job as the director of the Blidajoinville Psychiatric Hospital. And this was a time when a lot of the functionnaires, the civil servants who were sent by France to the colonies were 
assimilated West Indians. They were sent there as examples of the glories of French civilization. Fanon had anti-colonial convictions already, but he scarcely knew that a rebellion was about to break out. But when he got to Algeria, he had about 200 Muslim male patients, about 160 European women, mm. and they were living in a situation of what you might call medical apartheid. You know, they were living in separate pavilions. The psychiatric hospital in Blida-Joinville had been created under the influence of a man named Antoine Poirot, who was a, a modernizer and an innovator in French psychiatry, but who was also a profound racist and who had developed all these ideas about the biological inferiority of Algerian Muslims. Wow. And so Fanon found that he was facing not only terrible mental illness in his patients, but a psychiatric establishment mm. that was permeated by colonial racism. Who got to see him as a doctor? Doctor, my head hurts. And what tools did he bring to the job? He was trained, uh, you know, in classical psychiatry in Lyon in the late 1940s. But at that time, he was drawn to more radical forms of psychiatry that focused less on drugs and electroconvulsion therapy and things like that, and that were sensitive to the way that social and political oppression shape our minds, result in neuroses. And this was uh, called institutional therapy or social psychiatry, and began to apply them in Algeria. As I read you, he ends up feeling that colonialism is the illness, in effect, or oppression, or subordination, or some kind of denial of self. Could he say that out loud? Would he say it to patients? He couldn't say it out loud, and he was actually quite circumspect. It was an idea that Fanon had actually begun to develop in France with Algerians before he even got to Algeria. Because many of his patients in Lyon, this was when he was a general practitioner, many of his patients in Lyon were Algerian laborers who were sending back remittances to their families. And they were living in terrible conditions. They were sleeping seven, eight to a room. They were isolated. They were segregated. They were subject to all kinds of vile racism in France. And moreover, they had been diagnosed by French doctors as suffering from something called the North African syndrome. Wow. So for the French doctors, it was an, an imaginary ailment, or it was a pretext for not going to work. And what Fanon found was that these were men who were victims of racism. Racism was what was making them sick. And he wrote an article on that even before he got to Algeria called the so-called North African syndrome. So when he gets to Algeria, some of his convictions are powerfully confirmed. He can't say out loud what he thinks, but, you know, Fanon was not particularly discreet, and he developed early on a reputation for being a quote-unquote Arab lover. There were a lot of murmurings about this radical black doctor who was saying things that were challenging to the received wisdom among psychiatrists in Algeria. And so, you know, when the rebellion breaks out, November 1954, All Saints Day, Fanon's first impulse is that he wants to join the rebellion. Mm. I mean, it's rather remarkable. And of course, he was a soldier. He'd fought in France, and he wanted to join these young men. Of course, it's about race in some dimension, but from the beginning, he doesn't say it's simply about race or just my blackness or your no. whiteness. At one point, he writes, that this is still in his mid-20s, the real battle of being black in a white world he says, is a struggle less against a feeling of inferiority than a feeling of not existing. Right, of not having one's humanity recognized, of being seen 
principally as a racialized other, not as a person. This is why he writes in Black Skin, White Mask that he wanted nothing more than to be a man and nothing but a man. A very amazingly resonant phrase, nothing but a man, the black existentialist in some sense. It also gets very, very subtle, and he's a great writer. His aphorisms fill your book like this one. The colonized person is a persecuted person who constantly dreams of becoming the persecutor. Fanon, as you said, is a, was a great inventor of aphorisms and jingles, and he's the beneficiary of that, but he's also, in a sense, the prisoner of it, because often he's really read through those aphorisms rather than his thought, which is more complicated and challenging. But he was a wordsmith. He actually spoke of what he called the charge or magic of words. There was a discussion mm. between Fanon and his editor, Francis Janson, the editor of his book, Black Skin, White Masks, and Janson pointed to a passage that he couldn't understand, and Fanon said, mm, I don't want to make it any clearer because I believe in the charge of words. Yeah. I mean, he was a poet. And remember, Fanon's mentor was Martinique's greatest poet, arguably the greatest poet writing in French at that time, Aimé Césaire. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That line, a colonized person is a persecuted person who dreams of becoming the persecuted. I think that's been quoted about Hamas, too. I think I did. Did you quote it? I think I did in the the London Review of Books. But it was sitting there waiting to be captured. How did he describe the problem of becoming the new man, nothing but a man? Well, you know, there is actually, I think, quite a bit of continuity between black skin, white masks, and books like A Dying Colonialism and his manifesto of 1961, The Wretched of the Earth. Obviously, Fanon's thought evolves in various ways, but there is a continuity in the sense that Fanon always believed that collective problems like uh, what we today would call structural racism or colonial domination can only be solved via collective solutions. It's not an individual problem. It's not a problem of a racial attitude, per se. Not a neurotic problem. No, these are ideologies that are embedded in social, political, and economic structures. And unless those structures are dismantled, the problem remains with us. I mean, he didn't believe that race even existed. There's an extraordinary line in Black Skin, White Masks where he writes... The black man does not exist any more than the white man. These ideas of race are things that we come up with. They have a tremendous power over us because we've invested a great deal of belief in them. In other words, they are illusions. They are fictions that have real-world effects. The struggle had to be collective. Struggle had to be collective. In Black Skin, White Masks, he is envisioning a kind of uh, collective struggle based on cross-racial brotherhood. He's appealing for inclusion in a France that would be true to his democratic ideals. Fanon at the time still thought of himself as a Frenchman, but by the time he writes Wretched of the Earth, he has reimagined himself as an Algerian and as a citizen of the Tiermont, the Third World. And in that book, he is advocating a kind of sweeping and visionary armed struggle that would overcome uh, the chains of colonialism. And, And it's important to note that for Fanon, the issue isn't, are we going to overthrow colonialism? Because by 1961, it's clear these empires are falling. The question is, can we put something better in its place? Yeah, we'll come to that. So many masks, so to speak, as he writes about, but he's French, he's West Indian, he's black, Algerian, African, as well as being a soldier, doctor, poet, a very likable and attractive person, it sounds like, too. Highly sensitive. I mean, he was described by many people as an écorché vif, which means someone who's literally flayed alive. He could be volatile, but he was also charming and, and playful. 
I mean, Fanon had a very seductive personality too. I mean, I mean, even his his anger was seductive. His anger is still seductive. It spoke to you know a predicament in his own time, the continued absence of equality for people of color and colonized people, and unfortunately, it still speaks to our time. We've got to account, Adam, for how he's back, the presence in the American conversation, too. Can you say why? Absolutely. Fanon never entirely went away, but he's back because he is at once an analytic writer and an incredibly visceral one. To read a book like Black Skin, White Masks is to experience what it's like to go through the experience of racial oppression and discrimination. It's also a book that is infused with a kind of fervent sense of revolutionary humanism. And mm. it's for that reason, I think, that so many people who were involved in the uh, Black Lives Matter protests after the, the killing of George yes. Floyd were invoking Fanon. They were quoting a line from Black Skin, White Masks that when people can no longer breathe, they revolt. Fanon actually was referring to the Viet Minh when he wrote that line. But people have found, you know, very inventive uses of Fanon's more memorable phrases. And I think, you know, since uh, the October 7 attack by Hamas, uh, many readers have been returning to Fanon to understand both Hamas's attack, why this violence exploded, and also to understand the brutal and ruthless response of the Israelis in the Gaza Strip. Fanon had a kind of unequaled ability to capture the violence of the colonial encounter. At what point do you feel he's discovered the rage of the oppressed, which becomes violent? He's also well aware from the beginning that the primary violence comes from the occupiers, the colonialists. But how does he come to work with that idea? That, of course, people are not only unhappy, but on the edge of terrible violence in this situation. It's striking to me that... Fanon is so often described as and reduced to being a thinker of violence. Yes. And I've seen that in a lot of the reviews of the book, whether from the right or from the left. Fanon, he gave permission to violence. Right. And consider the fact that the most incendiary chapter in The Wretched of the Earth is not Fanon's chapter on violence, the first chapter of the book. It's Jean-Paul Sartre's preface. Yes. Jean-Paul Sartre wrote that for the colonized... Uh, to kill the settler is to kill two birds with one stone, okay? And to emerge a new man and a better man. Fanon never went that far. And yet when we think of Jean-Paul Sartre, we don't think of this violent man who proposed, you know, violent solutions, who was, you know, uh, hateful and scary and so on. And yet that's how Fanon's described. And to me, that says a lot about how mm. the writing of a black man on self-defense is received in the world. To me, Fanon is subject to the kind of vilification or, for that matter, the veneration of a figure like Malcolm X. Mm. In fact, Fanon wrote about a great variety of topics, not just violence. Obviously, violence is an important aspect of the writing, but it's not the sole one. And also, it's really important, I think, to remember that for Fanon, violence is a counter-violence. The colonial yes. world that the colonized inhabits is a world that was created by violence. French Algeria, remember, Algeria was not even a colony by the time Fanon got there. It was governed administratively as part of France. It had been divided into three departments mm -hmm. in 1848. How did French Algeria emerge? It emerged out of an invasion in 1830 
and a brutal campaign of pacification over the next four decades in which a third of the Algerian population perished. Wow. They perished from disease. They perished from violence. The uh, French soldiers would go to caves where Algerians were uh, taking sanctuary, light fires, and asphyxiate them. You know, Algeria had a very rich oral history tradition, so people knew those stories. Mm. You know, those stories, people grew up on those stories in Algeria. And only eight years before Fanon arrived in Algeria, there had been the great massacre of Sétif and Guelma, when the French, in response to nationalist revolts on V-Day in 1945, had responded by killing about 15,000 Algerians. We'll never know the exact number. So it's very important to remember this because the violence that Fanon analyzes as a psychiatric diagnostician and that he prescribes for liberation movements, that violence did not occur in a void. How did he account for the violence of the colonialists? When Fanon wrote about the colonizer, about the settler, he had quite interesting things to say. He felt that the colonizer was in a kind of position of insecurity. For one thing, the colonizer is a minority right, who has to maintain control of this vast territory. I mean, Algeria is, I think, three or four times the size of France. Physically, it's a very large country. Mm. And the colonizer is in a position of having to demonstrate that power, right, demonstrate it not just to the colonized, but to himself. And so what occurs is this kind of spectacular exhibitionist violence. That's how the colonist demonstrates that he is in charge. And we certainly saw that with the Algerians in France. We're also seeing that today in Gaza. This massive display of force, what the Americans called shock and awe, that was classic colonial strategy. We're just becoming aware, speaking for myself, that there's 500 years of history here of settler colonialism. Begins in 1492, obviously. Columbus heads west across the Atlantic. Vasco da Gama is heading east. And in a matter of decades, the Atlanticization, the Europeanization of the world is underway. It's now complete and overdone in some degree. But in what sense did Fanon see an absolutely global phenomenon here? And in an awful lot of cases, that settled colonialism led to genocide, including North America, of course, and Australia. New Zealand found its way out of it, but it was the rule more than the exception. Was Fanon half aware of that? Very much so, very much aware of that. And in fact, uh, he writes in The Wretched of the Earth that Europe is literally the creation of the third world. No, he was very alert to this. Um, He was not the only one, of course. His mentor, Aimé Césaire, wrote about this phenomenon in his classic text, Discourse on Colonialism, which was published in the early 1950s uh, when Césaire was a member of the Communist Party. And in that book, Césaire also developed certain theses about, about the colonizer as someone who had been de-civilized by the practice of colonialism, mm. because colonialism gave free reign to all of the colonists' brutal instincts. And Fanon, of course, draws upon the arguments mm. in Discourse on Colonialism in The Wretched of the Earth. But he was very much aware of the impact of the Europeanization of the world, And rather like Marx writing on capitalism, remember that Marx paid tribute to capitalism for its dynamism, for its innovation, and thought of of socialism and eventually communism as an heir of Mm. capitalism. So Fanon, in The Wretched of the Earth, pays a certain tribute to Europe in the closing pages of his manifesto, where he says that, well, Europe actually accomplished a fair amount, but now Europe has failed Mm to fulfill the promise of its own humanism. Its humanism has been corrupted 
by the practice of colonialism and empire, and it's time for someone else to continue the adventure of humanity and to create a new humanity. And that task falls to the emergent nations of the third world. I'm glad you mentioned Malcolm, because it reminds me that Fanon was one of an incredible cluster of writers and thinkers about race specifically. He was almost exactly contemporary with James Baldwin, but there's Richard Wright, C.L.R. James, also from the Caribbean, the English-speaking Caribbean, inheritors of W.E.B. Du Bois in so many ways, uh, Ralph Allison, Invisible Man. Where do we place Fanon in that explosive family of writers? You know, it's interesting. You were talking earlier about uh, Fanon's uh, description of the fear of not existing, yes. being at the core of the experience of racism. And that's a phrase that I find very resonant and very reminiscent, too, of, um, of passages in An Invisible Man. Fanon was very much a part of those conversations, even if he was not entirely aware of it in his lifetime. So this is a time when I think a lot of innovative and radical thinkers about race are drawn to psychology, uh, to Freud, and Fanon is one of them. And it's all the more striking when you consider that psychiatry had so often been used as a kind of weapon yeah. against black people. And Fanon was very much aware of that too. I think that what also unites Fanon with contemporaries like Baldwin, like Malcolm X, like Martin Luther King, like Richard Wright, is that he begins to develop an internationalist understanding of the place of race in European empire. Martin Luther King starts out as a critic of American racism, but by the end of his life, he's connecting racism to American militarism, to Vietnam. He sees the link between what goes on in the ghetto and what America is doing in Hanoi. Malcolm X is someone who develops an increasingly kind of what we might call third worldist understanding of racism when he breaks with the nation of Islam and travels to Africa and the Arab world. Malcolm X passes through Algeria, meets revolutionaries there, has a conversation with a white Algerian, a European who was part of the FLN, and asks himself, how can I embrace an exclusionary black nationalism if this man sacrificed himself on behalf of the mm -hmm. Algerian struggle? Richard Wright is traveling to Bandung in the 1950s, writing about Kwame Nkrumah's Ghana. W.E.B. Du Bois went into exile in Accra as a communist, never to return to the United States. He died there. All these black thinkers are developing an internationalist understanding of race, and Fanon is very much a part of that. Sum up his imprint on the matter of black mental health. I'm sure you're familiar with the whole school of black psychiatry in the late 1960s around, sure. around the subject of black rage. In fact, there was a classic book called Black Rage. Fanon's writing about the black psyche in a white-dominated society, about the formation of young black children in white schools, about black anger, about black self-esteem. All of these ideas had a significant imprint on the work of black psychiatrists in the late 1960s and early 70s. And in fact, there was a small library at Harvard Medical School dedicated to Fanon's memory that was established by Dr. Alvin Poussin in the early 1970s. Did he have a favorite among 
post-colonial societies. He felt Martinique, where he grew up, had missed something in not having a struggle, not having to fight for it from the French. Was he interested in India, the Gandhi example? I think it's a great gap in Fanon's work because he never wrote about uh, passive resistance, about the nonviolent model Gandhi had proposed. And I think that's often pointed out. I mean, India, it's argued, had a nonviolent decolonization, uh, whereas Fanon, famously or notoriously, depending on your opinion of him, uh, argued that decolonization is inherently a violent phenomenon. But I would actually argue that Fanon was not wrong about India either, because even if India came to independence in the course of a nonviolent resistance, you can only describe India's decolonization as nonviolent if you ignore partition. I was going to say, with the incredible wound of partition and separation of those two peoples, which are both now nuclear powers aimed at each other. I mean, Fanon's argument is that that violence is built into that process. The question is how it is channeled. And in fact, you know, Fanon writes in The Wretched of the Earth that initially the violent, bottled-up anger of the colonized will be directed at other colonized people. He also applied these ideas to the American slums in his lectures in Tunis. What did he say? He talked about black-on-black violence, quite precociously, in fact. He also wrote about police brutality in the States. Adam Schatz, unveil the other biography lurking inside your book on Fanon, the story of yourself, who set out to be a French chef as a little kid and swerved into modern French history, and jazz as well. Who's the author of this book? (laughs) You know, the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized that long before I even knew of Fanon, I'd had a kind of Fanonian experience as a child when I was Hmm. nine or ten, and uh, my friends uh, turned on me and started throwing change on the floor and calling me a dirty Jew. It's something I wrote about in that essay about being a child chef for The New Yorker. And I grew up in this very liberal, left liberal, non-religious, non-sectarian, non-Zionist household. It was the first time that I really had felt that I was addressed or, you know, interpolated, you might say, as a Jew. It was totally shocking to me. And, you know, years later, of course, I read Black Skin, White Masks, where Fanon writes about this primal scene, uh, the primal scene, I think, of his whole work. Hmm. When he's in France, it's after the war, he's on a train, and he sees this woman with her young son, and this little boy says, look, maman, a negre, look, mama, a negro. And he's looking at Fanon as though Fanon is a kind of terrifying object. Mm. And Fanon writes that he feels like he's lying spread-eagled, mourning his lost self, mourning on this white winter day. And Fanon had never thought of himself as a black man. He thought of himself as a Frenchman of color. The, mm. the black men were the Africans, right? He'd grown up in Martinique. The only black people he knew were the so-called tirailleurs Senegalais, the African riflemen who were also quite exotic to him, as exotic to him as he was to that boy. And so my first response to uh, being called a dirty Jew, after feeling, you know, kind of shocked and paralyzed, was to become violent and to beat a kid up, beat up a kid who had been my friend. You know, so when I read Fanon in college, I understood. I totally understood what he was talking about. This visceral emphasis on the relationship between humiliation and violence It made sense to me. The odd thing about this experience of bullying uh, that I had 
is that it led me to this new passion. I decided to start cooking, and I became a very passionate chef. And by the time I was 15, I was working in a French kitchen in Burgundy, doing a stage wow. with a with a three-star chef. And uh, what happened while I was doing this apprenticeship in France is that I discovered the the question of Algeria, which I'd never heard about. Amazing. I was I was in a car with a group of older men, including the man who ran the restaurant, the chef, and they began talking about the way in which Algerians would slaughter their lambs on Ramadan. They would kill the lambs, kill the sheep in the streets, and the streets would be filled with blood. And they were talking about these Algerians with a kind of jocular contempt that sounded, that was racism. And it startled me. Of course, I had this you know, very decorous notion of what France was. France was literature and cuisine and the, this beautiful language. And here I heard something that was horrifying and very ugly. And that was what first sparked my interest in this <laughs> colonial history, which, you know, later I was to learn much more about. Um, I had already seen Fanon's face because my father had a copy of Black Skin, White Masks in the original Grove Press edition in his library. And I remember as an adolescent, looking at the jacket of that book and being really intrigued by the photograph of Fanon, this rather handsome mm. man with a very grave expression on his face, natalie dressed, and the description of Fanon as this West Indian psychiatrist who'd gone to fight with a group of Algerians. How did this happen? So when I got to Colombia and started reading Fanon in my late teens, early 20s, I found him to be extremely compelling. He was the kind of paramount example of the intellectual engagé. He was what Jean-Paul Sartre wanted to be, but never could quite become. I think <laughs> Sartre looked at Fanon with a certain degree of envy. Wow. Um, Specifically know, of what? I think Sartre envied Fanon as someone who had thrown himself into the battle, who had been committed in a way that Sartre could not be. Right? He had joined the revolution. And as a reporter in... Palestine, eventually in Algeria, I kept running into Fanon, you might say. Mm. I mean, in Palestine, I saw that Fanon's ideas were still very much alive. His ideas about armed struggle, but also his ideas about torture, you know, the impact of torture on its victims. He'd known people who'd been tortured and people who tortured them. Fanon had treated people who were tortured, and he had treated the perpetrators when he was a doctor at the Blidajoinville Hospital. And he wrote about the psychic injuries of torture very vividly, very powerfully mm. in the last chapter on colonial warfare and mental disorders in the wretched of the earth. And, you know, he had had a big impact on Palestinian psychiatrists, people like uh, Ayaz Siraj, who ran the Gaza Mental Health Clinic, people like Sama Jaber in the West Bank. People like Ruhama Martan, a left-wing Israeli psychiatrist mm. who has worked with Palestinians for years. When I got to Algeria to report on the end of the civil war in 2002, I was struck by the fact that the readers of Fanon, whom I met, were not reading him because mm. of his writings on violence. If anything, they felt that violence had been a great plague for Algeria because Algeria had plunged once again into slaughter in the 1990s. No, they were reading Fanon because of his critique of the post-independence regimes, because of his belief 
in a multi-ethnic, secular, progressive Algeria mm-hmm. because his arguments about the avaricious national bourgeoisie and the apparatchiks who would run post-colonial regimes totally tracked with their critique of the Algerian pouvoir, the Algerian power, what's called the political economic mafia that has dominated Algeria since independence. So Fanon was clearly a figure who was alive. He had a legacy. Franz Fanon died in December 1961 at the age of 36. His friend Patrice Lumumba had been assassinated earlier in the same year with the CIA's hand in the Belgian glove. What would have been his final hope for post-colonial Africa? Well, Fanon's hope, of course, was that the states of independent Africa would be able to forge ahead, establish their own national identity, national economies, and then eventually come together into some kind of federation, possibly even a United States of Africa. It's something that, mm. that he alluded to. But 1960-61 was both an invigorating time for Fanon and a very depressing time because some of Fanon's closest allies in African liberation struggles were being killed. You could compare this in a way to James Baldwin's experience of the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. In Fanon's case, it was the murder by poisoning of the Cameroonian revolutionary Félix Mumier, to whom he'd been very close. He was killed by the Red Hand, the uh, death squad of French intelligence. And then there was the killing of Patrice Lumumba, whom he also deeply admired. And what Fanon was beginning to understand was that overthrowing colonialism, overthrowing the formal structures of colonialism, in other words, driving the European regimes out, was the least of Africa's problems. Mm. In other words, they were going to leave. That was a foregone conclusion at this point. The problem was what would happen afterward. In late 1960, Fanon went on this daring reconnaissance mission uh, in Mali, the purpose of which was to establish a southern front for the FLN. And while he was on that very dangerous journey, where he was pursued by French intelligence, he actually had to avoid taking a plane because the French were planning to to intercept him. Mm. He eventually had to make his journey on land. And what Fanon wrote about in his journals at that time is very illuminating. He writes that the main problem for Africa is going to be the absence of ideology. And what he really meant was the absence of a vision of emancipation beyond driving out the colonist. There was no vision of social emancipation. The African elites wanted to take the jobs left by the Europeans, but he feared that they would end up ruling other Africans much as the Europeans had, that there would be Mm. no real emancipation. It was one thing, in other words, to achieve liberty. It was another thing to achieve freedom. As Hannah Arendt wrote, there's a real difference between liberty and freedom. And so these were Fanon's rather melancholy thoughts in his Mali journal. Fanon was also observing these deeply autocratic tendencies in the Algerian national movement. The killing of his friend, Aban Ramdan, who had been his mentor and who had been the great champion of what Aban Ramdan called the primacy 
of the political over the military, right? That people of politics, political leaders, should govern the Algerian movement, not men in guerrilla fatigues. What happened, of course, in Algeria was that the French had liquidated the forces of the interior during the Battle of Algiers, and who benefited from that? The Army of the Frontiers, the army that was based in Tunisia and Morocco, led by Houari Boumediene, who would take power in a military coup in 1965, and the intelligence chief, Abdelafid Boussouf. And so Fanon's fear was that throughout these independent countries, it was the military intelligence figures who would run the states. It wasn't people who were devoted to a political order based on the rule of law, led by politicians, led by people of real vision. And so even though Fanon developed a rather close relationship with the Army of the Frontiers, he liked being around soldiers. He treated the soldiers. He saw these people as authentic peasant revolutionaries. Nevertheless, Fanon was very worried about the shape of these post-independence regimes. And he has some incredible passages in The Wretched of the Earth, which to me are very similar to and prefigurative of things that a rather conservative writer who shared some of the same ideas, V.S. Naipaul, very reminiscent of some of Naipaul's images of the post-colonial states. For example, Fanon writes about these post-colonial regimes where the heroic leader remains in power for decades and calls people out to assemble once a year to celebrate the great revolution that he's made, to wave the flag of independence, to remember all the losses of the independence movement. And after that, he tells him to go home and not to become involved in politics. And that's what we saw in so many post-independence countries, that politics was something for men in power, for military men, and everyone else was supposed to mind their own business and show up for the rallies in honor of the men who made the revolution and who continue to, in a sense, own the country as if it were their private property. It occurs to me he's missing Boston's own Samuel Adams, a good civilian who believed even a war revolution was absolutely necessary, but then it was over and we started anew with civilians like himself. Well, I don't think that Fanon would have found much of a place for himself in post-independence Algeria. I think that he would have found himself a very isolated figure. Hmm. Could he have survived there? I don't know. I mean, eventually, really within, within about 10 years, most of the so-called Pied Rouge, the, the Red Feet, uh, these were foreign leftists, many of them French, who came to Algeria after the independence struggle had been victorious. They came there to help set up the Algerian state, to educate people and so on. Within about 10 years, most of them mm. had left, and Algeria became a much more austere, inward-looking country. My sense is that Fanon would probably have suffered the same fate. He would mm. have been there for a while, and eventually he would have had to leave. I'm beginning to feel his presence, even as we speak, and I mean it seriously. Imagine, Franz Fanon witnessed and abetted the end of the great empires after World War II. English, Portuguese, French. What would he make of the American empire that went global in the Cold War, still has some 800 military bases around the world? What would he make of our management of it? Wars all my life in Vietnam, Southeast Asia, Afghanistan, Iraq, 
and in the Middle East, what would he make of the resistance or non-resistance to our empire? What would he make of the reactionary pushback today that you speak about? White supremacist, some say, nationalist in some places, populists rising against plain people. I think he would be distraught, but I don't think he would be surprised by the resurgence of authoritarianism and white nationalism. And I think Fanon most likely would have seen the United States as the great enemy for people in the formerly colonial world. When he wrote of the new humanity or the new man, he was not talking, certainly was not talking about an era of neoliberalism in which the economies of the global north would help themselves to the raw materials of the global south. That certainly was not his vision of emancipation. It was not simply a matter of people of color taking over the positions that had once been occupied by white people. Hmm. That to him was never sufficient. Um, it was not about Africanizing hmm. the structures right. of the colonial regimes. It was about a genuine social transformation. That's why he regarded the Algerians with an admiration bordering on envy. That's why he wanted, in a sense, to become uh, an Algerian. So I think that if Fanon were around today, and if Fanon saw these hundreds, thousands of American military bases, I think he would ask the question, how can a country be free? How can a country exercise sovereignty if the military bases of the world's most powerful country are stationed there? For him, it's a fundamental obstacle to the exercise of sovereignty and the experience of true freedom. So on those grounds alone, he would have deplored the impact of American empire. But at the same time, I think, you know, he would have drawn great inspiration from the fact that it is the South Africans who have leveled a genocide charge against Israel in Gaza. I think he would have seen this as an example of an emboldened Global South diplomacy. I think he would have felt quite excited about that. In fact, mm -hmm. um, the first chapter of The Wretched of the Earth on violence has an addendum in a, where he writes about the transformation of diplomacy as a result of the independence and anti-colonial struggles. He contrasts the new diplomacy of the Cubans with the old diplomacy. And I think he would have seen the, the South African case as quite exemplary, I'm, uh, not least for the fact that the South Africans, in a sense, were putting the West on trial. They were saying, yes. we will not tolerate this kind of violence. Your framework for understanding crimes against humanity may be Auschwitz, but we have a different framework. Our framework is the crimes that Europe has committed against the colonies. And for us, Gaza is a part of that narrative. And we find this to be intolerable. And we don't see why there should be two standards when it comes to the humanity of people in the West, or for that matter, the humanity of Israeli citizens, and the humanity of Palestinian Arabs who are being killed en masse. Adam Schatz, you've given body and weight and voice to a man we barely knew, enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you so much, Chris, it was a pleasure. Adam Schatz is the U.S. editor of the London Review of Books. He's the author of The Rebels Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Franz Fanon. Here at Open Source, we depend on listener support. If you haven't done your part yet, do it now. We've made it easier than ever. Just subscribe to our Substack newsletter at radioopensource.substack.com. You'll get our regular email newsletter 
and you'll help keep the world's first and longest-running podcast going strong. Open Source is proud to be a member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-based collective of independent, creator-owned podcasts. Our shows range from politics to art to history to technology. We come together around the principle that independent voices are more important now than ever. You can learn more at hubspokeaudio.org. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.